You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game study scholar from Germany. And you can find this show every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. Today is a bit of an exceptional situation. Now I'm alone. <laughs> What happened there? Well, uh, Dan Hughes is still moving houses. And Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate, unfortunately fell ill just before the recording of this episode. By the way, Aaron and me, we are both currently clawing our way through Returnal. And we're planning to talk about Returnal a bit more in depth in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. But we also got a nice little pre-recorded interview that we definitely wanted to share with you. Actually, we've been kind of uh, waiting, plotting and scheming for an opportunity to bring this fantastic interview in. So you should definitely stay tuned for that. At With a Terrible Fate, as you know, we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free and independent. You will not encounter any advertisements or a paywall. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. So if you like this show, if you enjoy what you're hearing, then please contribute. Please help us keep the mics buzzing by going to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. Our main story today concerns the player avatar relationship and more specifically, moral obligations and duties that might exist between the two. Aaron has pre-recorded an interview that we will listen into now. So Aaron of the past, take it away. Hey everyone, and welcome to a very special interview edition of With a Terrible Fates podcast, uh, and probably also shared via video on our YouTube channel if you are watching us. Uh, I'm Aaron Saduko. I'm the founder of With a Terrible Fate, and I am so, so honored and happy to be joined today by Daniel Munoz. Uh, Daniel is currently a lecturer at Monash University. He teaches uh, in what's called PPE, which is a combination of politics, philosophy, and economics. He will shortly be starting at UNC Chapel Hill in the philosophy department. And I actually have the distinct pleasure of having known Daniel from his time uh, when he was but a wee PhD student uh, <laughs> in MIT's philosophy department. Uh, and he was one of my very favorite um, teaching fellows or otherwise known as teaching assistants uh, when I was learning philosophy coming up at Harvard uh, and taught me a lot about Kant and ethics and metaphysics and all the good stuff uh, that were really foundational to everything that now happens with a terrible fate. So Daniel, so happy to have you here, my man. Thank you for joining us. Hey, couldn't be happier to be here. <laughs> Likewise. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that this will be a great start to our interview series because You know, you're one of those amazing people who works in philosophy, is interested in gaming, has a diversity of interests, and also similarly to the spirit of With a Terrible Fate, you know, recognizes the value of doing philosophical work both within and without academia. You've done a lot of really cool work, uh, especially over the pandemic, kind of applying your work on moral philosophy to things that impact our everyday lives, uh, like whether or not we're morally obligated to wear masks, uh, which I think is tremendous. And so that's, that's really the spirit of the conversation I'm excited to have with you today. I think it'll be great to dive into your work on moral philosophy and also think about whether and the extent to which it has applications in video games. Perfect. I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. 
Me too. Me too. Long overdue, but excited to finally have it and, and share it at last. So you work in moral philosophy. You work in a specific corner of moral philosophy, thinking about uh, what duties we have to ourselves. So maybe, and especially for those listeners and viewers who don't have a formal background in philosophy, uh, you could give us a little bit of context around what work you do uh, and why it might matter to them, especially. Sure. So the idea of a duty to oneself has this long history in philosophy. Kant says it's the foundation of ethics. You got to respect yourself first and foremost. Um, you know, the, the very idea goes back to Plato having Socrates say, you know, the importance of self-knowledge, not lying, don't misrepresent your beliefs. And yet there's something ridiculous, like almost like silly about the idea of owing yourself anything. Right. So if I owe you 10 bucks, um, I'm under an obligation, right? I'm bound. Uh, but if you want to, you can release me. You can say, ah, don't worry about it. It's a gift. You're off the hook. But if I owe myself 10 bucks, this seems like on the one hand, I'm supposedly bound as the person who owes the duty. On the other hand, it seems like I'm unbound anytime I want because I'm the person to whom the duty is owed. So there's this huge, this is one instance of a huge problem that lots of interpersonal relationships that make up morality, things like, you know, I might owe you something because I wronged you, like I owe you compensation. I might be indignant at you. I might threaten you. I might command you. There's all kinds of, you know, moves that we make in conversation and ways that we relate to each other morally that just seem to be complete nonsense applied to oneself. And yet the relation to yourself is if not fundamental, like Kant said, at least important. You do, after all, have to live with yourself. So how are you supposed to have self-respect if you can't owe yourself anything? How are you supposed to have self-control if you can't command yourself? There's all these great paradoxes, and they are, for me, the launching pad of the way I do moral philosophy. I love that. And I think, you know, especially as someone who uh, is a super fan of Kant, I can appreciate the idea <laughs> of, of ethics being grounded in that, as I know you know. Um, there's a question that comes up for us oftentimes when we're thinking about video game philosophy, and I, I know comes up for moral philosophers all the more so, uh, where people often ask, so what? Uh, especially when you're talking about the the metaphysics or the grounding of a topic area as opposed to its practical implications. Um, and knowing that your work focuses a lot on uh, not necessarily in the first instance what those duties to oneself might consist in, but how it's possible to have duties to oneself. Uh, do you think that there is a so what uh, that falls out of your work for everyday people who are living their lives and thinking about how they ought to conduct themselves? For me, there were two so what's. The first was wondering about whether I can treat myself as especially important. Philosophers like Peter Singer have done an amazing job of urging the need to take global poverty seriously. And you don't even have to look that far across the globe to realize that there are other people who need things more than you do, right? Um, I am probably going to buy a latte today. Do I need that latte more than somebody else in the community needs that $5. Uh, it's five Australian dollars. So it's not that much, but it's still something. <laughs> All right. So I, I became very puzzled because it seemed to me a kind of like cheat to say what all the common sense moral philosophers around me were saying, which is, yeah, they need it more, 
but you can treat yourself as more important. I found that a bit arbitrary and almost a bit, you know, immoral. <laughs> like I thought the point of morality and doing ethics was to like learn that other people are your equal. And here it's saying the enlightened thing to do is tr- get rid of that ideal. So that was the first, so what was this like a, am I allowed to treat myself as more important? And if so, that means that it's a lot easier to justify buying a latte. If not, that means that we might need to seriously, seriously reorient our lives towards service for the people who need it, whether that's recipients of aid or the people who would benefit from political reforms we should push for. So uh, this question of self-sacrifice is the first so what. And then there's the question mm. of self-respect. So people like Singer, when thinking about the need to make sacrifices, have tended to start from, start from this like idea of what moral philosophy does as expanding the circle. Okay, so everybody starts off as being selfish, the idea goes, and then the moral philosopher comes in and talks them out of it. You know, okay, at least what about your like your mom or your brother or your your your, your friends? Say, okay, well, I guess they matter too. I guess I'll care about them for their own sake. Okay, what about like your cousin or your neighbor or someone else from another neighborhood, even? And they say, okay, yeah. All right. Now what about someone who's starving in Yemen? And and what about mm. some, uh, say, creature of another species whose uh, suffering is part of your breakfast? Okay. Once you've expanded the circle to the rest of the globe, including other forms of sentient life, Singer says, moral philosophy has done its job. But I think most people actually need a very different journey, right? I am not starting off from this place of pure selfishness and self-love. And many times in my life, I found it very hard to like myself. You know, uh, I think this is, I, I call some of these times high school, you know, uh, it's just <laughs> not that easy to, to constantly think you're the best and want what's best for yourself. And um, so I think that the journey to taking the self-respect, sorry, taking the respect that we show to others Right? We, can, we can be so kind to others, so compassionate to others, so forgiving of others, sometimes at least. What happens when we sh- turn that compassion and patience in towards ourselves? What happens when we respect our choices, even when they're not perfect? That is another so what for me, the question of um, self-respect or self-esteem or self-worth, seeing yourself the way that the people you love can see you. It's so funny because... Yeah. And, and you're right. So many moral philosophers start from the position of selfishness and move the circle outward. But I, I don't know whether you see it as a particularly modern problem or just something that's gone overlooked because you're right. I feel like many of us and maybe some of our listeners oftentimes start out from a position of not thinking very much of oneself or thinking that one doesn't owe oneself the same respect or to treat oneself as well as one owes one's neighbors. So to be able to build up a position from which one actually owes oneself that respect seems to me pretty compelling once you talk about it, even if moral philosophers try to lead you down the opposite path to ethics. That's a very insightful way to put it, Aaron. I mean, to me, the kind, we take ourselves for granted in a way. Um, and I think we do this because we stand in a certain kind of relation to ourselves that if we were to look at the two-person analog would be something like, you know, the boss 
and the follower, mm. right? Uh, it's not that we're all of two minds whenever we make a decision, but you'll notice that you're the perfect cooperator pretty much for your own decisions, right? Whenever you want something, you tend to end up deciding to try for it. Whenever you tell yourself to get something, you start um, at least making a desultory effort towards it. Um, there's not as many, you know, hard no's when you're trying to get yourself to do something as there are when you're trying to get somebody else to do something. Um, there's no, not the same clash of will, but you can take yes men for granted, right? If someone um, is dedicated to cooperating with you, you can ask too much of them without realizing that you're asking too much of them. You can forget that even if they don't take advantage of it, they have a right to say no to you. And that's kind of the way that I feel about uh, me and myself, right? Uh, I You could be so hard on yourself. You can want so much from yourself. You can expect so much from yourself. And sometimes that is because you forget that you have a chance not to say no to yourself necessarily, but at least to say no to, you know, um, making certain sacrifices, not just for grand moral things, but even for like, you know, I used to feel like I had to be the smartest person at MIT. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, and I would push <laughs> myself so hard and I just make myself miserable. Um, of course it was never going to happen or anything, but, uh, once I kind of taught myself, I can say no, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not like, you know, a, a slave to this project of becoming smarter. Like I, I have a right to say no and just enjoy my afternoon. Sometimes that to me was a step towards a much healthier way of relating to myself. It was very different from, you know, thinking that I'm the center of the universe, but also very different from thinking that I don't matter. I, th I think that's tremendous. Uh, and I, I think it's a great transition into something else I'm curious and digging into with you as well, because I, I have a suspicion it might have interesting applications or insights into video games as well. And that's this notion of how we agree or disagree to do things when we're deliberating with ourselves, uh, as you so eloquently speak to, right? Uh, in some of your papers, you talk about matters of consent and how part of why it seems really weird to think about duties that we owe to oneself uh, is that when we're talking about you know, duties that we owe to other people and things we can do to other people, there's this notion of consent and someone outside of ourselves can say, yes, you can do this to me or yes, we'll do this together uh, in a way where it just, it doesn't seem exactly right to say that whenever we're going about the day and to use one of your great examples, you know, ripping open our own mouths and pouring hot coffee down. <laughs> it's, it's not as if we're, we're not actively consenting to that, right? But it also seems like we're not doing violence to ourselves, right? So uh, maybe we can explore a little bit more exactly how you think that works and how that one person deliberative relationship uh, relates to more complex units of decision making, uh, like, as you say, with, with an agreeable partner or a yes man. Yeah. Well, this is going to be really interestingly related both to single player and multiplayer games, I think. Mm. Right? So um, I mentioned, you know, kind of at the very start, there's something paradoxical about of way, a lot of the normal ways you relate to other people being turned into relations towards oneself. And consent is a great example. You know, you just drank something. Did you consent to having it poured in your mouth? That uh, seems over, you know, pretty ridiculous way to put it. Um, right. But there's some deeper common core. So there's a deeper sense in which what uh, what two people do when they have consent and what one person does to themselves is similar. And it's something like uh, 
I call it unanimity, right? There's the unanimous decision of all parties involved to jointly do some action. Now, when you decide to drink, uh, unanimity is pretty cheap, right? <laughs> it's just you, yourself, <laughs> and you. Uh, but when, you know, it's, for example, you having a drink from my uh, mug, there has to be a joint decision there. Uh, because we're not already of one mind about this, there has to be communication. This famous thought that consent requires communication. So you might ask me, can I have a drink of that? I might say yes. Then you receive, you, you take up the consent, and uh, there you go. So there's a whole spectrum of cases, I think, in between the you know one person who never has to ask themselves, do I want this? They just, of course, want it. Unanimity is automatic. And so there's no unwilling victim. It's perfectly morally fine. And on the other hand, two separate parties, one of whom has to petition for consent, the other person who has to explicitly signal that they give it, and then there's uptake and finally action, right? Because like when you're on a team with somebody playing a game, it's not as if you have mind control over them. But then again, it's not as if you have to constantly ask them permission. You can spontaneously start you know, moving in patterns, uh, following strategies, and um, sometimes you are acting jointly, not just acting, you know, in the same map, but like doing something together where if one of you, one of you stopped, the other person would say, Hey, what are you doing? I thought we had a plan here, even though the plan was never voiced. Mm. So there's this interesting spectrum that I, I think would be worth exploring. Yeah, I think that is worth exploring. And I wonder whether, you know, typically on the site, we think about video games in a single player context as mostly a mode, of, a mode of storytelling. But I also wonder, you know, you raise the specter of multiplayer games. And I think there's something really interesting um, just thinking about this idea, especially of things like coordination and consent in gaming as a model, where by virtue of it being a game, right? There's a rule set. There are typical standards for how one comports oneself uh, and the objective uh, that, you know, the team is geared towards, right? Mm. In a way where just going about one's life in everyday society, you know, there are rules and standards in certain contexts, but it's much more in flux and oftentimes much more implicit rather than explicit in terms of what goes on in the game. So I wonder if there are any interesting applications there in terms of being able to use games to better understand these duties and obligations that we owe ourselves and others? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. So I like the point that, how to put it, uh, in games, the rules seem more rigid, whereas in real life, the norms are a bit more in flux, right? Like what are the norms for how you're supposed to walk past someone on an escalator? Might depend on the city, might depend on the country, might depend on the person in front of you and so on. Uh, whereas in games, you know, when does the game end? You know, there, there might be a time limit in big font at the top of everyone's screen. But that said, I think that you can actually see some elements of cooperation and conflict avoidance in kind of hidden elements of multiplayer games. So think about like the meta game in fighting games, right? Mm. Uh, there's a bunch of techniques that are banned in, in for example, Smash Brothers Melee. Not because they like crash the game, but because they're irresistible for one player to use if left legal, but mm. really unfun for everybody if players are forced to resort to them. 
like uh, Peach can stall with her side special, Infinitely on Fountain of Dreams. And just so she gets a lead, right. then she goes, wacha, 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 for like five minutes. <laughs> um, and it's no fun. But it's not like, look, if, if someone wants to win, and that's a legal move, they're going to take it, right? Um, and there's nothing in the rigid rules of the video game that say you can't use side B. Um, right? So the players have to actually institute their own rules. And, you know, that's not even starting with the the, the idea that, like, you know, most competitive scenes deconstruct or add in rules from the base game. So um, I think although there's uh, a lot of um, a a lot a lot of rules baked into the game to start with these communities by developing a metagame and by uh, developing their own rules, like which stages are legal and uh, which moves are banned, um, they actually end up showing a, a quite sophisticated kind of cooperation that, um, interestingly, is not... I mean, the, the idea of cooperating in a fighting game is in itself really amazing, right? Like, you would think, like, what's the classic zero... You know that the term zero-sum game? Yeah. Yeah, so, right, it's a, it's a game, so two players uh, with interdependent decisions where... One person's win is another person's loss. And, you know, uh, if you were to sum up the wins and losses in any outcome, they're always going to equal the same thing. You're dividing up the slice of the pie, not changing uh, how much pie there is. So you know, fighting games are classic zero sum, right? If I, if I kill you, you die. You kill me, I die. Um, it's not as if there's like a, you know, a teamwork outcome in Mortal Kombat. right (laughs) right but but like you can see that um there's this deep human need for cooperation given that there's so much we can do to annoy each other um and the development of a metagame is a kind of non-zero sum element Uh, that's to say an element where you can have a win-win or a lose-lose um there's a non-zero sum element in the richer metagame around this superficially zero-sum core. Let's swing the conversation in terms of the metagame to single-player games because you you bring up this really interesting point of what we're licensed or not licensed to do based on these concepts of duties and what we owe each other and the degree to which we want to cooperate. And I'm, I'm fascinated with how that might correspond to what we do or don't owe our avatars as players in situations right. where there aren't other real players on the other side of the table, right? Uh, you know, I, I think about as just a toy example to get us into this, uh, something like a very metagamey concept of min-maxing your stats with a character, right? And you can almost think of this, uh, at least at first blush, as an analog to what we really do in real life, right? In terms of what we put our skill points into, right? And uh, min-maxing has just always felt to me like a classic example of something that is a mode of disengaging from a narrative and treating an avatar less as a character and more like an object by which you're able to complete this game, right? Because it's all about being able to complete the tasks in the most efficient way. And it's, it's fun to think about, you know, if we're engaging with the fiction in a serious way, you know, you might consider factors like, um, 
you know, the, the total lived experience of the avatar trying mm. to create an identity that is holistic or authentic for them, um, which, you know, the act of min-maxing might run counter to, right? So when we think about video games as a means of experimenting with or better understanding or applying fictional duties, right, and apply that now to questions of maybe not duties to the self, maybe duties to something self-adjacent, depending on how you want to think about the mm. avatar-player relationship, but how can we start to think about the ethics towards one's avatar in a game without those other players to take into consideration? That's so interesting. I mean, Avatar is the perfect yes man, right? Anything, I mean, there's layers of, there's layers to the fictional structure. Uh, You know, it's not like when I play uh, Skyrim, Daniel is part of, you know, (laughs) Skyrim. (laughs) Uh, But I am, I am a player of the game and um, I am controlling an avatar and that avatar does whatever the player says to do. So, so you have this kind of relation to the avatar that is analogous to the relation that you have to yourself in this respect, right? Um, you listen to what you say, that kind of thing. So, what, what kind of respect then do you show? Do you have to show that this this person, well, this this avatar? Um, well, I think obviously it'd be too extreme to say like, you know. Um, don't impose any burdens on it. Make sure that it has a chance to sign consent forms. I mean, it can't even sign anything <laughs> unless you tell it to sign something. So, I mean, the idea of uh, respecting its individuality as separate from you is just not really feasible. Uh, it's kind of silly. Um, and in some contexts, like, it is just an object. The, the, point of it, the point of playing a game isn't always to immerse yourself in the fiction, as you know. Like, I'm thinking, for example, of, uh, you know, people who speed run Zelda breath of the wild, like they never sure. put a shirt on poor link. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't like that in the game, but you know, the, the, <laughs> the player has other things in mind that they're doing. And similarly, you know, you don't worry too much. Like when you're playing chess, ah, oh, the King is really far away from all his pawns. I hope he has some friends, you know, what's he going to do if he's bored uh, between battles? <laughs> it's like, you know, the fiction is so thin in chess and it's so pr- pretty thin even in uh, the world of a speedrunner. But when you do engage in a role-playing game for the sake of immersion in fiction, for the sake of self-understanding, what should you do? I don't know. Can I put this question to you? Like, I guess it's a question of what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you get out of a video game for yourself when, when you're in it, not just for the gameplay, but for, for the story? It's a really good question, and it's one that is so complicated. I think part of what I am wrestling with these days and wanted to tag you in to to help me wrestle with is this idea of what the player in her particular role of agency in a video game owes to the universe as a whole and also in terms of its constituents when we think about the fiction, right? Because, you know, we've talked a little about my own work on the player avatar relationship. Uh, I'm a little bit of a weirdo in the, in the world of philosophers of video games, because I think that the foundational role that the player plays in the fiction of a video game on the level of it's like fictional ontology is not one of inhabiting the role of the avatar as such, but rather something more like a, a fictional God figure, right. That actualizes possible events. Right. And, and I so think in my right. world, for, for the record, I, <laughs> I I'm a, a Sudokian. 
<laughs> yeah, I, you know, what can I say? I, I just, I was, I've been convinced by that since the first time you, 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 uh, swatted away my objections. <laughs> well, you're very kind to have said that. And now you've said it on the record. And as we know, philosophers are never allowed to change their views on anything. No. So now you're in my camp for all time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think it's fascinating. Right. And I, I'm, I'm at the stage in my own thinking on it where I'm moving kind of out of the metaphysics and into the meta ethics and ethics of it, so to speak. Right. Because I think it's, it's really fascinating to think about this relationship where on the one hand, as the player, you're able to follow the path of and, and make events true in the life of a particular character in this world. So even have, if you have this view that you're fictionally grounding the events in the narrative, you're still certainly doing it from the perspective or following along with a certain character in this world. Right. Um, but you also have this more detached, metaphysically foundational, again, kind of godlike capacity to be the arbiter of what happens in this world. So you're, it's it's a really challenging and interesting hybrid to me because on the one hand, I feel like especially in those character-rich games where you're very closely tied to the avatar, there have to be some analogs to duties to the self and how you think about what you owe yourself. But then I find myself nowadays, especially going back to the book of Job oftentimes, right? And I'm not, I'm not especially religious. I am not a biblical scholar or anything like this, but this, this question of what does God owe the people in his world, right? Which in the real world where you think about God as this, you know, oftentimes, especially in philosophy, I think this kind of Leibnizian God, right. That, you know, brings about the best possible world and is all knowing and all good. You know, it's, it's hard to get around the question of those ethics, but when you get to the matter of a video game and a fiction where a player has this power uh, and oftentimes no mandate to bring about the best possible world, there's this very interesting question, I think, of, okay, what do you owe the avatar? Also, what do you owe the world? Do you owe it to the world to bring about the best possible instance of it? Uh, and, and how do you adjudicate those kinds of ethics of an entity that has this, this kind of agency that doesn't even really comport with the same kind of agency that those characters have in relation to each other, right? So how, how would you think about engaging with those various factors? I'm thinking of it in two steps right now. One is, imagine you're a god of a real world, right? Uh, as God was in the Old Testament. When you ask, what does God owe Job? Um, that's just straight up moral philosophy, right? Job is an end in himself. He's this being with rights. He matters mm -hmm. morally. He's important. He can suffer. So, um, you know, God owes whatever anybody would owe to Job who has the power to affect his life. I mean, you know, maybe God has some special extra authority, but you know what I mean? Assume, assume we're just talking about a God who can make things happen. Forget about the, sure. you know, you owe me a solid for creating the universe element of that. <laughs> right. Okay. So it's in a way it's a bit easier if we're dealing with creatures that morally matter, but in the video game, step two, there's this further wrinkle. I don't know if you noticed this, but video games aren't real. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're real to me, God damn it. But, uh, uh yeah, I know but, some people who would contest you on that, but I'm not one of them, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll put it this, you know, no, um, 
you know, I, I've never made Link feel pain, literally. Um, though I have definitely elicited many screams, so to speak, from poor dying Link. Okay, so so this is question. <laughs> Given that we're dealing with a fictional world, how does that change the ethics of it? To me, this is deeply mysterious, and no one really has it figured out yet. I mean, if you buy into some big moral theory like utilitarianism, which says, you know, what matters is promoting global happiness, then it's really just some question about psychology. You know, the video game characters don't matter, but what kinds of play styles will make you a more effective altruist? That's basically what the question of video game ethics will come down to. But um, I think... If, you know, once you get beyond utilitarianism, you allow a few other kinds of moral value. There's another question. It's something like this, you know, is there anything intrinsically messed up about creating morally grotesque fictions? Like imagine that I just write these torture stories about some guy named Bill. And I just imagine all these gruesome ways for Bill to die. And um, they're not even that like aesthetically great or anything. It's not like you know, the Saw franchise, you know, level, you know, creativity. It's just just gruesome stuff happening to this guy. Um, if you, like, came across my notebooks of the Bill Chronicles, I'd be like, I mean, one, you worry that I might do some of this stuff in real life. But even beyond <laughs> that, you might think, like, is that a way to spend your time? Or, you know, as opposed to, say, imagine I I had kind of, like, written books exploring, you know, psychological relationships that come to my mind, like, you know, father-son relationships or friends or romantic partners or things like, you know, other parts of human life besides making people suffer. There's this question of what's, are you ethically enriched or ennobled by the stories you create? And if you think the answer might be yes, then that could be a clue for how to think about playing games because you're not just a God affecting real people, but you are, in a way, the architect of a story. That strikes me as right. And I think there's there's yet a further wrinkle in video games because they can't be complicated enough, right? Um, and I think we can think about this in kind of two steps as well, right? Because, you know, the, the question of ethics and fiction, of course, is an old one, right? And I think you're right. It's a very challenging one. And I think, especially because of the interactivity in video games, people get tangled up in all the wrong kinds of confusions about how to think about it in the first place. But I think one more basic question uh, and a question that just makes for really good stories in any storytelling medium, right, is this question of, well, what do we owe to characters? And, yeah. and like you said, right, is there something that is morally reprehensible, you know, either really or fictionally morally reprehensible about the idea of creating characters who are destined to suffer in some way, right? And I feel like a lot of, you know, postmodern work, especially that reflects on the nature of what storytelling is, reflects a lot on that, right? You get things like, you know, Pirandello's play Six Characters in Search of an Author, which is basically all about the story of these characters who are deeply existentially tormented by the fact that they are characters and have to have their story enacted, which is a, a very painful story, right? Uh, and I think... One of the really interesting things about where we are in this moment in video games is that the medium is becoming sufficiently robust with a sufficiently storied history that they're starting to compli uh, complicate themselves with some of these same 
issues. And the issues have added levels of sophistication, right? Because not only is the person engaging with this medium, this kind of fictional God who's able to bring about these worlds and, you know, raise in a very fictionally robust context, this question that moral philosophers do think about, or, you know, you can ask, is, is there an ethical problem with bringing into existence entities that are only going to suffer? Suddenly we start looking like much more familiar ethics, right? But also this question of characters that are ontologically distinct, right? And this is part of where I, I find myself trying to bring in some of your research and this thought of, you know, if there are duties to the self that are distinct from duties to others, or just, you know, the same kinds of duties, um, in a different guise, because there's, there's the avatar in a video game, right? And in one sense, that's just another character that's, you know, happens to be the main focus of the story. And then there are what we call NPCs, right? All of the other characters, uh, over which we do not have agency. Uh, and in many games, when you actually think about the structure of possibilities and ways in which events can evolve in those games, those characters are in a, a very foundational sense, subordinate to the actions of the avatar, right? Because the actions of the avatar are what advances the stories in, in different, you know, provably counterfactual ways, and the player is responsible for those actions that the avatar undertakes, right? So it raises to me this really interesting question of not only what do we owe characters in general and what do we owe fictions in general, but also how do we adjudicate these different kinds of characters and are there any tools that we can import from the questions of what we owe to ourselves versus other people in the real world to understand what is ethical or not ethical to do to characters of these various ontological statuses. Well, one thing I wouldn't want to say is that you can never hurt a character because you don't want to be naughty and only a naughty person would hurt a fictional character. You know, uh, obviously so much of what makes for like morally enriching fiction is not, you know, bland pablum of a bunch of people, you know, being nice boys and girls and obeying the rules, right? Uh, like Greek tragedy has people um, doing all kinds of messed up stuff and usually paying the price for it. Uh, and right. that's, I think, some very deeply, uh, deeply moving and ennobling, not because it's, uh, it's bland and people are nice, but because it takes you through the motions of these profoundly morally charged actions. Okay. So, uh, then if it's not just be a good boy or girl, how are we supposed to treat our characters exactly? Um, well, this is to me going to raise the question of what are we getting out of the game? And something I'm just going to throw out there is self-understanding. Mm. Right. Um, what, what, what is it like to be a different person or how, what would I be like in this scenario? Now, as you know, as, as you convinced me, actually, um, when you play a game, you're not really imagining, ah, that's me, Aaron running through Skyrim, right? But you're controlling a character named whatever they're named who is running through Skyrim. Right. Um, and this is this is where the stuff about unanimity comes comes in handy. This is as close as it gets to you being somebody else, right? The relation you have to that avatar, who is a different person, 
right? In the fiction, that's not Aaron. That's, you know, whatever, you know, I, I don't know what you name your avatars. Uh, I always have silly names for my avatars, but you know, it, it's. Give us an example. What's a silly name? Uh, I don't know. Um, Sean. I, I, I like having like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sean the orc or something like that. So, right. uh, you know, that's not you. That's Sean. But like your relation to Sean the orc is like, it has the same, you know, instant unanimity mm. that um, you have with yourself, which makes the, the, the makes it very fluid the way you control them, which leads to a, a natural sense of identifying with the character. So you get to feel what it's like to identify with somebody making choices in a world that you just can't access normally. So one thing you could discover is, oh, this is what I would do right? It turns out what I would do is I would buy a giant house and put a bunch of funny trinkets in it. That's what I would do given Skyrim. Or it could be what I would do is I would, I would get the biggest possible fire spell ever and burn goats. You know, that's what I would do. <laughs> um, and you get to learn something about, about how you tick. Um, but another thing is just that you, you might also get a better understanding of somebody else if you're role-playing properly, right? Um, you know, you might say, okay, what would it be like if I were a thief or an assassin, whatever it might be. And that leads to a better kind of understanding. So I think to know how you should treat these characters, the question isn't how would I treat a good person? You know, the question is, what am I getting out of the experience? And if the question is understanding, then maybe be exploratory in the way you behave. Don't just try to be a nice boy or girl. I like that idea of grounding the the value you derive from it and self-understanding too, because I think you, by, by your own accounts, based on previous conversations we have had about this, are punching up the unanimity between players and avatars too much. Uh, and I'll cite... Uh, an example that that we talked about before that you raised, which has stuck with me, and I'm actually uh, selfishly uh, stealing for Please, a paper yeah. that I'm working on right now. But y- you talk, you you mentioned this idea of avatars wanting to do things with which players are uncomfortable or which mm. they would rather not enact. Right. And with a spoiler warning for The Last of Us Part Two, it's such a great example of that because as you drew my attention to, right, you go through this whole game uh, as Ellie. You have this revenge quest against this girl, Abby, because she killed Joel at the beginning of the game. Right. But over the course of the game and seeing the world not only through Ellie's perspective, but also through Abby's, you come to have sympathy for Abby, and you realize by the end of the game that Ellie has just held on to this need for revenge well beyond the pale of reason, and you would rather she let it go, right? But the game ends in this really uncomfortable battle between Ellie and Abby where uh, I think you're right in assessing that the player at that point or the ideal player or whatever you want to call her would rather let that conflict go but 
there is no other available path for Ellie. She insists on carrying it out. And so you have no choice but to input these action commands on your controller to make Ellie continue to fight with Abby. And that's so interesting to me because it is not a case of unanimity, right? Mm. You're, mm. you're aligned in undertaking the actions, but the player would much rather not do those things. And yet this avatar is in treating them in some sense to do so. Right. And I feel like that friction and lack of alignment and almost for the reasons you talk about being of two minds, right. Is, is even more conducive to self-understanding in a way that you don't get in other fictions. Man, that is, I'm getting chills just thinking about, about the example. That's, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause like, I've been kind of assuming open world games or games where the player has a meaningful choice. I've been mm. talking about that. You get to see what you do with all that canvas. But yeah. The Last of Us Part Two, for the reasons you just gave, is a perfect like opposite of that. So rather than letting you see what you would do, it's making you feel what this character feels by forcing mm. you to become unanimous with the character or else you don't get to see the rest of the game. So that's using the gameplay mechanics, the narrative mechanics, the draw of the story to force the player to make the story go one way that they might not want it to go. So that rather than getting the self-expression part of that, it's the empathy that they're forcing you to feel. And I think this part of the game was extremely poorly understood by a lot of critics like I think I may have mentioned this to you before. Nikki Jakey's yeah. very interesting, actually, review of the game comes down hard on this. He says, The Last of Us Part Two is trying to give an anti-violence message. Right? There's one interrogation where Ellie beats Nora uh, with a pipe, and you have to press right. square on PlayStation to make this happen. And he thought, like other critics, the message is you should feel guilty. Look at what you've done. You press square and now you beat this poor lady, for, you know, but that's, that's to me, that's not at all the point of the, and, and interviews with the developers suggest they didn't intend that either. The point isn't to make the player feel guilty for the choices they've made. That's the self-expression way of thinking a game with a, a linear narrative with forced choices. Like last of us is instead going for that empathy and empathy it can be uncomfortable to make you do the uncomfortable thing. Mm. They make you press the button. So I think they've, a lot of critics have misunderstood the point of that scene. And uh, like I said, I I get chills thinking about it because um, it makes you go through the motions of making that decision, which makes you feel how like traumatic and, you know, fucked up Ellie's mind is in that game. Yeah. No, you know, I, I think that's a great point. And it, it segues into the last thing I was really interested in chatting with you about, which is, you know, the extent to which video games might be able to become more philosophically rich or ethically sophisticated in their storytelling, right? And I feel like that's a great entry point into that because one thing that, you know, many people take as a prerequisite for ethics is the capacity for empathy, right? Or an understanding of the the what it's likeness of another person's perspective, right? And it's it's so interesting to me to think about how examples like that one we just talked about in The Last of Us Part Two kind of turns that paradigm on its head. Because I think oftentimes when we think about things like empathy as moral agents, right? We try to put ourselves in another person's shoes by saying, okay, if I were in their position, what would I do? 
Mm. And The Last of Us Part Two, especially in that last fight or even that interrogation, seems to do the opposite thing where it puts you in their shoes by saying, okay, this is what they are doing despite what you would rather have them do, right? And that seems like such a more uncomfortable, but also to me, potentially insightful way of getting in another person's perspective where you recognize that they're different and you have no standing to actually change their mind about the action that they want to undertake, you know? Totally. So what could developers do to make this kind of thing happen more? Well, first it's worth in fairness saying why it's so hard right? Uh, what makes a video game fun is that you have a certain amount of control. So if mm. you want to do something as the player and they've given you control because that's what makes the game fun, then you're going to want to change the world in line with what you want, right? So how does The Last of Us Part Two, for example, get the player to have enough control to have fun, but also be deprived of control in ways that force radical, painful empathy? I mean, I think they've done it very cleverly by making most of the missions um, things that the player doesn't dislike, right? Fighting the zombies or fighting certain enemies, just getting away. But but then in these crucial moments, um, the player's avatar is trapped, right? Uh, Either by the necessity of the story as in the interrogation scene or, you know, uh, you know, it's just one, uh, or, or Abby's fight with Ellie also is another example, or, or the last fight with Abby, um, where you're controlling Ellie. It's possible to be trapped in that scene because it's a boss fight, right? Or it's a cut scene. And um, right. it's okay to have, you still have control over where you're walking in the room and stuff like this. Um, and as much as I, I didn't want to slash Abby after, you know, intentionally dying eight times i finally accepted that okay i have to do this now if a whole game (laughs) is like that where i would intentionally die because i didn't want to do the next thing that's just unplayable but they got creative right they they put the i can't i don't want to do this bits at crucial points with tons of story momentum and where it was over before too long so there's no one size fits all answer for how to solve the we'll call it the um I don't know, the, the dilemma of philosophical games. How do you give control but take it away when it counts? Um, you got to be creative. And I, I can think of a few games, very few games that have done it as well as Last of Us Part Two. Well, a good pitch for that game, definitely. And, and I think <laughs> what you say about control is, is deeply right. right. I think whether we're talking about, like you said, open world games or games with a much more constrained story, oftentimes, whether it's in the design of those games or the consumption of those games, we think about control as something that can be varied across genre. But when you're thinking about a given game, it's anchored and a constant across the game. You can make all the decisions about a character or it's just totally linear and there's no Mm -hmm. middle ground, right? But I think you're right especially as games are becoming more sophisticated. Um, I hope we see more games like The Last of Us Part Two in the sense that they see control more as uh, just another language that they can use in their storytelling, right? Because uh, so often, and even, even in academic literature, talking about you know what it is to tell a story in a game, 
like you said, many of those aspects of the game in Last of Us Part Two are very similar to cutscenes. Uh, and mm-hmm. many analysts will say, well, you know, there's video game and then there's cutscenes, and cutscenes don't really constitute part of the game. And that just strikes me as deeply wrong for exactly the reasons you're talking about. Insofar as they're embedded in a broader game, cutscenes can be, you know, essential to not only the story, but also the player's relationship to it because it is a constraint on control, right? And that seems to be where a lot of these interesting philosophical and and ethical questions of how we relate to other people and how we comport ourselves and what we do arise in the storytelling. So I, hmm. I really like that. I think you're, you're right. And there's even richer elements of a video game than the cutscenes and the action. I mean, there's just like a fighting game has its meta game. There's the kind of uh, meta experience of playing a game. For example, the game over screen. You know, I mean, one of mm-hmm. one of my favorite uh, moments in any game uh, is <laughs> the beginning of Persona Five, where mm. you know you have to accept that it's a fiction, and if you don't, yes. it just game overs you right there at the very beginning. <laughs> or or take take the the final fight from The Last of Us Part Two. Um, like I said, I game overed a many, many times because I was so uncomfortable with killing Abby and I wanted to see if I could change the outcome. And the game had these, has these quite gruesome, you know, cinematics um, of Abby killing you if you don't kill her. And that uh, is also part of the experience. I mean, if you call that a cutscene, you're missing part of the point because it's mm-hmm. common knowledge between you and the developers who've made the game, right? That like, you might not want to be doing this. And they know that, and they so it sends a message when there's this gruesome game over, right? That like no, there's no other way out. Yes. And I think absorbing that is one of the like, you know, it's just oh shit, I have to do it moments, and uh, you, you don't get that from a mere cutscene or a mere film. No, you definitely don't, and. I mean, we could spend another three hours talking just about this, but I think the the game over and those, uh, like you say, metatextual, but also deeply textual aspects mm. of video games are so interesting and so salient because you're right, just, just by virtue, not only of that kind of dialogue and give and take with the developers, but also the ability to explore these characters through multiple iterations of their lives, multiple possible outcomes of events and failures and trying things over again after the characters die, you get a much more robust sense of who they are and what possibilities are available to them and what you do or don't have to do with that as a player than you do in other kinds of storytelling media, like the film or the novel. Right. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, as I know, I said that was the last thing I was interested in chatting about. I I have a million things to chat about, but in the interest of time, um, you know, we've had some interesting conversations off mic before about video games uh, as a mode of engagement with philosophy, right? So not games as philosophy as such, but as a means of thinking about ethics and other philosophical issues in the classroom. Uh, And you know, given that you're on the ground every day teaching people philosophy, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on ways in which games could be used as a tool to better teach people philosophy in the first place. I do think that fighting games, for example, are one of the best ways to think about conflict and cooperation and coordination. Um, you just you just see a very clearly defined objective, you know, I KO you, you KO me, and a whole culture will emerge 
of people trying to milk this experience for all it's worth and make it more fun for everybody. So from, from the point of view of social philosophy or from the point of view of say game theory, I think fighting games and the fighting game community uh, are totally under theorized and have come up with some amazing stuff. As far as ethics, um, I'm actually working on some stuff to do with uh, the last of us as a way of teaching ethics. Cause I think that the choices that Joel makes in the first game are much more interesting than some of the stock choices that you see in ethics 101. Like, you know, there's a kid drowning in a pond. Do you save it? Oh yeah. Well, why don't you give 50 bucks to charity then asshole? It's like, okay. I, I, checkmate. I, I do love that. Yeah. Checkmate deontologist. So look, I mean, I do That's love right. that, um, you know, that seems famine, affluence and morality. Uh, I, I think there's a lot to it, but I think, um, some of the, some of the drama that you get from certain video game choices is so fantastic. And like, um, you know, so spoiler for last of us part one, um, you know, Joel at the end has to decide between killing this daughter figure who he's been, you know, with for the entire game and who saved his life and so on, uh, in order to make a vaccine for this awful virus, um, or, uh, you know, basically killing the, <laughs> uh, killing the resistance who have been developing, uh, the vaccine as best they can. And he chooses to kill them. And it's a way, a very selfish choice. You know, he wants to have this life with his daughter because he's lost his real daughter and you know, he feels alone as a survivor. But on the other hand, um, there's also, it's, it's not as simple as Joel is an asshole, uh, so that's certainly part of it. Like there's also real love. And um, so you see complicated things because these characters have spent the whole game together, right? There's um, there's love, there's deception. You know, does, does Joel tell her the truth about what happened? No. And she has to live with it. There's, um, you know, kind of thinking about the greater good. There's thinking about... Um, the rights of the few versus the many, like the, the, the themes in, in this game, just to, I'm picking one at random, right? The themes in this game mm. are so intensely awesome. And, you know, I'm sure you could, you could teach a whole course on fallout side quests if you wanted to. But anyway, um, what can I say? I, I, I think that people need to get with the times philosophers, especially like, you know, um, philosophers can't just use examples because they were the hot ones 300 years ago or 2000 years ago. And they shouldn't just be using fiction because that's what like educated Oxford guys read in the fifties. Okay. You know, mm. their students play video games and they play them for good reason. So if you want to relate to the students, you want to hook the students, talk their language. That's what I think. I don't know that I could say it any better myself. That's, that's very well put. Uh, and you know, to maybe add a button on it, one thing that I know philosophers do think about, but don't follow it to the logical conclusion of video games is you know, the question of how robust a thought experiment has to be to really you know, mm. get our intuitions going in the right way about the issues in moral philosophy or any other branch of philosophy, right? And 
you know, a question of can something like just the sanitized notion of a child drowning in a pond and what an agent ought to do really give us a full sense of the moral universe of the situation in the way that a dramatization like The Last of Us can. And, and when I at least think about all of the different kinds of storytelling the video games have at their disposal between the audiovisual and all the agency that we just talked about, it seems like uh, it could be a much more robust way of getting a grip on some of those really challenging problems. And, and like you said, you know, thinking about various considerations of something like Joel's decision at the end of the game that aren't immediately obvious if you were just thinking about the same kind of situation in the abstract. Right? Yeah. And this will be my last, my last piece. Uh, I don't want to take all your time. Um, thought experiments to stick up for them a little bit, I think are supposed to at least ideally be tools for imagination, right? They're like props, you know, I say there's a trolley headed towards five. You can turn it away onto one. You're supposed to kind of use your own judgment and imagination to fill in the details appropriately. That's how it's supposed to work, at least, um, when philosophers have thought experiments. But um, imagination is not literally, but it's, it's a muscle. It's a skill, okay? You know, um, and the sad fact is that we don't teach it enough at universities. And well, not, not certainly not in the way that we teach memorization as a skill. So mm. I think that playing video games can be a way of juicing up your imagination. And that is not just a kind of, um, you know, the, the way people talk about them as if it's a waste of time. Like, no, that's one of the most basic skills that you need to think creatively. And, you know, that's something you should bear in mind when you decide what games you like to play and how you like to play them. But it's something you can take away with you once you're done. Well put. So go forth and, and train your imaginative muscles by playing some video games. <laughs> I will. Become I'm going to go play some video games tonight, actually. Thank you for this. Ah, cheers to that. I'm glad. What are you playing? Let's end on that note. Oh, let me see. I, you know what? I think I haven't, I, I haven't gone back to Breath of, the, Breath of the Wild in a long time. I think I want to play Master Mode, to tr try a new game with Master Mode. Nice. Well, yeah. that sounds like a good night in my book. Uh, Dan, thank you so much, man. This has been such a great conversation. Uh, listeners and viewers, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope we have occasion to have you back and have many follow-up conversations. Yeah, I think what you're doing is important. And thanks for letting me be a part. Right back at you. Thank you, Dan. That was Aaron in an interview with Daniel Munoz. Uh, thank you so very much to the two of you, actually. Thank you to Aaron of the past and uh, all the best to a quick recovery. And in the meantime, dear listeners, we're going to move ahead and do some side questing. As most of you know, in our side quests, we discuss most anything that happens within the domain of video game culture and game studies or wherever, whatever is on our mind. And I'm going to keep it brief today because I'm alone, but there is an article that I definitely wanted to share with every one of you out there. And that is an article titled Disability and Video Game Journalism, a Discourse Analysis of Accessibility and Gaming Culture. It's an article by Sky Larell Anderson and Karen Schreer. It was published in the journal Games and Culture. It is an article that is dear to me because 
prior to working on my PhD, which I'm doing at the moment, I was venturing quite a bit into the domain of disability studies. And to get an understanding of what this article is about, which is primarily focused on video game journalism and how it handles constructions of disability and how video game journal journalism talks about disability, it is important to get a brief understanding of the theoretical and methodological premises. So their starting point, basic assumption that they subscribe to is that disability is socially constructed. Now, obviously, when we say on the show here that something is socially constructed, then that doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, right? But there is a distinction, the authors argue, between, on the one hand, an objective impairment and, on the other, a socially constructed disability. Take, for example, short-sightedness, right? A lot of people have that. A lot of people are short-sighted. And that is an objective impairment. It's a visual impairment because the eye doesn't operate at its full capacity. But you would hardly consider it to be a disability because what you do have are glasses, ideally, right? In most situations, you have glasses, and that's why your short-sightedness might not impact you to the degree that would warrant it to be referred to or considered as a disability. So this idea of disability being socially constructed shifts the focus away from an individual's affliction and the functionality of an individual's body towards the society, the societal context, and the question, what kind of tools we provide people with in order to be inclusive, in order to lower the barriers of entry into certain fields. And in game studies, the primary paradigms, the authors argue, under which, or by means of which, disability is discussed, is from a medical interventionist perspective. So that would mean the question, how games can help people with disabilities, for example, by advancing their motorical skills or helping them retain them. Or it can be narratively focused, which means you could look at, for example, what kind of stereotypes of disabilities are predominant in video games. We also have a discourse that's going on in the industry itself around the question of how video games can be inclusive. After all, video games are, in comparison to movies and to music and whatnot, you know, many other books, many other media, video games demand some kind of physical activity and often even great precision and quick reactions, right? So it is definitely a question that video game, the video game industry, video game studios, video game publishers need to concern themselves with how to lower the barriers, how to make it inclusive and accessible. Now, what the authors of this study, Skylar Rell Anderson and Karen Schreer, do here is a discourse analysis. That means, quote, the phenomenon we aim to investigate is culture, and we access culture by examining how the texts that culture creates describe disability and accessibility, end quote. Simply put, the two of them looked at 60 articles They've taken 60 articles into consideration from Kotaku, Polygon, and PC Gamer, three huge online games journalism outlets. 
And importantly, the search that I did took place in October 2018. The oldest article dates back to June 2008. So we have to consider, we have to keep in mind when we discuss this article and this research that most recent debates are not included. They came up with six thematic categories that they were able to identify. Those are categories into which they could sort these 60 articles. The first category is gamers with disabilities. That would be 14 articles in the sample. This includes articles that talk about um, for example, people who stream video games, who have a disability and stream video games. They would be the topic of such an article, right? The second one is gamers uh, or games portraying disability. Five articles fall into that category. Those articles usually praise specific video games for the way in which they portray disability. The third one, game design and accessibility. That was the biggest category with 15 articles. Those articles, for example, discuss accessibility features, such as when you have a QuickTime event, then you might have the option to not hammer down, mash the button, but instead just keep it held down, which obviously makes it easier for people who cannot move their hands or their thumbs as quickly as the game expects them to, to get through these QuickTime events without giving them too much hassle. The fourth one is game controllers and accessibility. This includes discussions of devices such as Microsoft's adaptive controller. The sixth one, am I at the sixth one or at the seventh one? I don't know. I have no idea what I'm talking about here. Is a general discussion of accessibility, which means that often these articles introduce the topic and emphasize its importance. The authors say, quote, they are catch-all pieces that either celebrate certain innovations in game culture or give an explanation of issues of accessibility in gaming, end quote. So these are relatively broad, broadly conceptualized articles. And the last thematic category, advocacy for persons with disability. Those would be Articles that reference organizations and individuals that are there to support people who have a disability. For example, Able Gamers is one of the most renowned NGOs in that section. It can also be articles about uh, disability-themed game jams, where people come together in a short space of time over a weekend usually and develop games that deal with the subject of disability. Now, these are the six thematic categories that they were able to identify in these articles, and they took them then and looked at what commonalities there are, what kind of language these articles use, what kind of discursive strands they can identify, what kind of themes. And they came up with four discursive themes that I find rather interesting. I'll briefly go through them. The first theme is discourses on self-congratulations. This entails articles about how gaming has become much more inclusive. I'm sure if you are involved in video game discourse, then you must have read at least one of those articles at a certain point in your life. Quote, These articles acknowledge the challenges faced by players with disabilities, but they also suggest that both the present and future will hold fewer problems with regard to accessibility than is likely true, end quote. So these are articles that emphasize the success 
articles that say, wow, look what exists, look what we have done, or look what a studio or publisher XY has done to make games more accessible. Isn't it amazing? And the problem that Anderson and Schreier have here is that they often neglect persisting issues. They refer to this kind of theme as toxic optimism. They say, quote, a feeling of accomplishment exaggerates what has been accomplished while diminishing the obstacles that persons with disabilities continue to face now and in the future, end quote. The second discursive theme are discourses of fetishization. You know, a fetish that generally means to commodify something. And here in the context of this article, they use this term to say that something is portrayed as a fascinating other, right? Um, you might know this, for example, when you are a vegan and then you go to a barbecue and everyone's like, oh, wow, you're vegan, you know, that's so cool. And even though they might praise you, there's still something like a moment of being something else, a moment of being othered, not being part of the in-group. And an example for how video game journalism talks about disability would be a headline such as this. This is actually from this study. Even with one hand paralyzed, this CSGO player continues to kick ass. End quote. So while generally... It is commendable that these issues are being covered, that they're being talked about in video game journalism. There are problems, as the authors argue, quote, However, the articles focus on the mere existence of players with disabilities as being newsworthy, combined with how the articles offer extraneous detail as to how players somehow manage to play games, contributes to a cultural understanding of disability as not only being outside of normal, but also being a subject of corporeal fascination. End quote. Now, the third and the fourth one I'm only going to address very briefly, also because Anderson and Shreya are not really criticizing them that much. The third one would be discourses of awareness and advocacy. Um, right? This refers to articles or discursive strands that are imbued with the endeavor to raise awareness. For example, an article might be titled, Why Game Accessibility Matters. This would be a headline for an article, and such articles are not specifically criticized within this study. Also, uh, the fourth and last discursive theme is discourses of problem solving. These are articles that illustrate how problems encountered by people with disabilities either can or have already been solved. Quote, Problem-solving discourses are beneficial in that they educate both players and developers on how simple and even cost-effective it is to increase the accessibility of their games, end quote. So, you know, in comparison to this self-celebration, the self-congratulation that I mentioned earlier, it seems that these discourses of problem-solving are more oriented directly on examples, on steps, concrete steps that have been taken and how they benefit people who have a disability. Now, conclusion. What is there to say? Most importantly, Anderson and Shreya say that games journalists should definitely avoid toxic optimism, basically celebrating gaming culture for how far it has already come, 
and they should avoid fetishizing people with a disability. This also applies to pictures, by the way. Something that many might not even think of that much. You know, this is generally, this entire criticism, to me, at least, appears to be one that's not to say, oh man, these games journalists are really dumb or really bad, really bad people. But it's more to basically draw attention to such details, to such facts, that a picture, a lead, leading picture, a header picture of an article that displays a person operating a controller with their chin, um, focusing on this particular aspect, also means a certain fetishization. That's at least what Anderson and Schreer are arguing here. And that's why we should avoid doing that. We should instead treat people who have a disability just like a normal person that we would that we would use in a picture as well, you know, for such an article. Greater awareness, they also say, regarding the principle of universal design would very much be desirable. Now, universal design, um, that basically is the difference between, or there is a difference between, on the one hand, having a video game and adding accessibility options. Now, that's obviously not a bad thing to add accessibility options to your video game. But the idea of universal design is that you would, from the drawing board onwards, when conceptualizing the game, straight from the get-go, you would consider the aspect of accessibility, right? You would have it in mind straight from the get-go. And that's their next recommendation. This would also be uh, a lot easier if players who have a disability would be somehow involved in the creation process and the production process of, of video games, right? They could work at developer studios, obviously, but they could also be uh, consulted, right? Um, like an NGO that could be consulted to check whether a game's concept is in line with the principles of universal design, whether it is accessible and where problems might be, to identify them early on and to not have to just compensate for them afterwards with accessibility features. They also say, and this is the last recommendation, that it would be quite wonderful to have some shared guidelines. Guidelines where publishers and developers could share their understanding regarding design specifics and develop something like a catalog of best practices, a, a best practices repository, one could say, where if you are a developer and you want to design your game, then you could check this repository to see how you can make it from the drawing board on more inclusive. And the last quote, the last thought that this uh, article ends on is one that is quite common in this uh, discursive uh, strand as Anderson and Shreer end on the note saying, designing for accessibility and creating a culture of accessibility makes games and game culture more accessible for everyone. This is the article Disability and Video Game Journalism, a Discourse Analysis of Accessibility and Gaming Culture by Skylar L. Anderson and Karen Schreer, published in the journal Games and Culture. Of course, you can find this article linked in our show notes, although I do think you do need some kind of institutional access to read the full article or a subscription. Uh, I'm not quite sure how it works with a subscription because if you are a part of a university, if you're a student, if you're a lecturer, 
or an otherwise member of the organization of a, of a university, then you will have free access to this article. And that's it for today's show. Uh, again, um, it was quite a pleasure to listen to the interview from Aaron with Daniel Munoz. Uh, I'm glad that I at least uh, got my side quest in here. And um, obviously, stay tuned. Send us your thoughts and questions. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can write an email to podcast at withaterriblefates.com with your thoughts and questions. If you do enjoy the show, then it would be absolutely wonderful if you would consider going to patreon.com slash withaterriblefate to give us some financial support as we don't have any other earnings, obviously. Or you can, or you can also do both, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. This would especially help us in these early days of the podcast, you know, to not be completely swallowed up by the algorithm. We would very much appreciate that. And then we'll talk again next week. <laughs>